We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens the face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Since no one knows the future, who can say what is to come? As no one has the power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. And literally that last verse could read, lords it over others to their hurt, probably talking about those who oppress and it's interesting to think about the fact that for the quester, quite, quite possibly, the king he's talking about, the person who was in authority in his day, wasn't a follower of God at all. It's quite likely he was writing under the Persian Empire, and the king was a follower of some other pagan god. So this is not a king who's particularly sympathetic. This is not a government who's particularly on the side of those who follow God. This is a king who really knows nothing of Yahweh and nothing of Yahweh's people and isn't particularly interested in the things of God. So it might seem surprising that in that context, he gives such a glowing endorsement of obeying the king. I mean, he says it several times, obey the king's command. The king's word is supreme. Whoever obeys the king's command will come to no harm. And it's interesting, the reason that he gives for this, obey the king's command because you took an oath before God. And you might think that lets you off the hook because you didn't take any kind of oath to obey John Key, so therefore you're off the hook, right? You know? It's not quite that simple. I think what he's saying is simply obey the king's command because you are committed to God, because you are submitted to God. It's out of your submission to God that you submit to the authorities that God has put in place. It's precisely because you have submitted yourself to God that you submit yourself to earthly rulers. In other words, your submission to God and your submission and respect for the government are connected. We like to think they're in separate worlds, that there's our faith over here and there's our, our loyalty to God over here and, and the government and politics are over here and they have nothing to do with each other. In fact, they are, in the scriptures, inseparably connected. And Paul makes this explicit in Romans 13, which is really the key New Testament passage on submitting to governing authorities. Listen to this in Romans 13 verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. I think it's important when you come to passages like this to remember that Paul is not saying Every individual government is specifically appointed by God. He's not saying every individual ruler or head of state 
is specifically appointed by God and therefore can do no wrong and therefore should be unquestioningly obeyed. That's not the tenor of this passage. It doesn't mean that governments like the Libyan government or the Syrian government should just get to exist and carry on the oppressive way in which they're acting unchecked. This does not mean that such governments are divinely sanctioned and therefore should be unquestioned and unchallenged by their citizens. But it does mean that in general terms, and this is what the quester is echoing in, in Ecclesiastes 8, human authority in the form of government is given to us by God. It is part of his plan. It is part of his way of ordering his world. And therefore, human government does get a certain legitimacy because it is of God. And it is part of his way of exercising his sovereignty and his order on this planet is to provide various forms of human government. Yes, some are better than others. Yes, some reflect more Christian values than others. But we should submit ourselves to the governing authorities because the authorities that exist derive their legitimacy from God. They don't have an absolute authority. They only ever have a relative authority. God alone has the supreme and absolute authority. But there is a relative authority. There is a relative legitimacy that governing authorities have. So as Christ followers, we should be prepared to respect. We should be prepared to submit to. We should be prepared to obey those who are leading the country. This is what was so nice to see when John Key came and spoke to the uh, mob earlier in the year. He had a room full of guys, many of whom wouldn't have been National Party supporters, many of whom wouldn't have been uh, favourable towards some of the policies that John Key would espouse, and yet the tone in the room was one of respect and grace and civility. And questions were asked respectfully and graciously. And that is precisely how we should respond. Doesn't mean you can't question. Doesn't mean that there's not a time to challenge. But it means that our posture towards the governing authorities should be one of respect and should be one of grace. And it means, as Ecclesiastes points out, that like it or not, we should be, as followers of Jesus, law-abiding citizens. It's what it means in our context to obey the king, is to follow the laws that are instituted in the country in which you live. And we can all nod our heads and we're all quite happy with that idea until it comes time to fill out the tax return. Yeah, we all sort of, in principle, that sounds fine. You know, I'll obey the governing authorities until it comes time to get the building consent for the house renovations. You didn't laugh at that one, did you? <laughs> until it comes time to jump in the car and decide whether or not we obey road rules, speed limits. Until it comes time to decide whether we'll download pirated movies. See, these are points, they might seem <coughs> trivial, we, we, can, we can brush those off, but isn't that where this becomes applicable to us? Isn't it in those small things where we learn to obey and respect and submit to those who have authority over us? It might not be comfortable. Might not agree with it. Might find it really, really difficult. But I would suggest that as Christians, part of our witness, part of our testimony in the world and to the world is that we respect the laws of the land in which we live. And it's precisely because of our respect for God that we do that, because he has instituted these authorities. So it's a sign and a reflection of our submission to the Lord that we submit to the authorities 
that he's put in place. It's part of our testimony. It's an outworking of our faith. It's an expression of our love and our submission to the ultimate authority that we submit to the governing authorities. Now, the situation that the quester is dealing with in Ecclesiastes 8 is a bit more specific than that. And particularly what he's looking at is a situation where one particular person has appeared in the king's presence to plead his case on some particular issue. We don't know what it is. I I suspect that because of what he says in verse 9 about the injustices that are happening, that he's possibly appeared before the king to plead the cause of the oppressed or to plead for the government to stop oppressing uh, certain groups of people. We don't know quite what the issue is, but he's appeared here in the king's presence to stand up for a particular cause. And in and of itself, that's perfectly appropriate. The quester never condemns him for that. The quester never says we shouldn't appear in the king's presence, we shouldn't go anywhere near authorities, we shouldn't have a voice. There are times when it is appropriate, when it is right, when it is healthy for Christians to have a political voice. I think there's a couple of extremes we can go to. We can go to the extreme of separating our faith from our politics so that they have nothing to do with each other and our faith just exists in some little furry, fuzzy, spiritual world, completely devoid from what happens in the real world. We don't want that, but then at the same time, we want to avoid the extreme of having our faith so intermingled with our politics that you can't separate them. But in the middle somewhere, I think there is a, there is a place for Christians to have inappropriate ways, through appropriate means, through non-violent means, a political voice before authorities to use the channels that are available to us within our own country, to voice Christian perspectives on certain issues, to stand up for particular ideas and approaches to issues that represent a biblical standpoint. What is interesting, though, to me, and somewhat concerning, is the way that when you look at the issues that Christians tend to have a political voice on, they seem to be a very narrow range of issues. We tend to have a big political voice when it comes to issues like abortion, or issues like homosexuality, or personal moral ethics, particularly personal sexual ethics. And we have a big voice and we organize ourselves well to campaign and and sometimes to protest and to lobby and to try and influence legislators around these kinds of issues. And that might be appropriate, but it seems like there's an absence of Christians standing up for other issues that are just as biblical. Where are the Christians standing against Child poverty in New Zealand. Where are the Christians standing up for the rights of the poor and the marginalized, the immigrants, the refugees, those that have no voice? We're very good at speaking up against the anti-smacking bill, but are we as vocal against child abuse in New Zealand? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be on one side, but on the other side, it seems like there's a big absence On the other side, it's like we just don't have the same level of interest. We don't have the same level of concern, which is ironic because when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, it is precisely these issues of justice, compassion, and mercy for others that they stood before rulers and kings to contend with. It is the cause of the fatherless and the orphan and the widow and the foreigner that time and time again, they would when they did speak before rulers and authorities, it was often those issues of justice for those who have no voice, justice for those who have no power. These seem to be the things that occupied the minds of the prophets. Why is it that in modern Christian culture, we are preoccupied with a different set of issues? I wonder if somewhere along the line there's an imbalance. 
and without compromising our stand around issues of personal morality. We need to broaden out the issues that we care about and are concerned about. And maybe our primary political voice, when we do exercise it, should be on behalf of those who have no voice. Maybe as a rule of thumb, we should focus our political energies on speaking up for those who just simply can't speak up for themselves. So I would include include abortion in that category, but especially the rights of those on the underside of power and those who perhaps don't have access to the same resources that we do. As well as all this, Ecclesiastes 8 is a huge warning to us on the limits of political power and influence for followers of God. Because what he ends up saying to this guy who's appeared before the king is basically, don't push it. Don't push your luck with the rulers. He says, obey the king's command. And then in verse 3, unfortunately, this verse I don't think is very well translated. He says, do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. That word hurry, it literally means anxious or terrified or afraid. I think it would be better translated, do not be afraid to leave the king's presence which ends up meaning something completely different from what it means here. I I think he's saying, don't linger in the presence of the king. Don't overstay your welcome. Don't push it beyond what you need to. Don't be belligerent. Don't stand up, he says, for a bad cause. A bad cause is simply here a cause that the king has decided is a bad cause. It's not sin, it's not wrong, but it's an idea or an approach or a petition that the government is not interested in, and he is saying, don't push your luck. Have a voice. Have your say. Use the channels that are available to you. But be careful that you don't bring the gospel into disrepute. That you don't burn your bridges and cut off chances of being able to have influence sometime in the future that you don't break down relationships with the very people that you are seeking to influence. Don't push it. There's a time to have a say. There is absolutely a time to speak up in the political arena, but there is a time to let go. And there is a time to say, you know, we're just going to be belligerent if we carry on. We're just going to push it beyond what is reasonable. And now we just simply need to step back and accept the outcome and move on. And I know that that leaves you in a particular tension in the present because it means that you do end up having to live with legislation, with laws, with governments that very often don't reflect a Christian perspective, that don't, don't follow the way of life that God would advocate, that don't pass the kinds of laws that we feel should be passed. You live within this type of society, but it shouldn't surprise us that we do. It shouldn't surprise us that governments don't reflect the same values because we are never promised that this is the way we're going to change the world through political power. We're never told that we're going to have governments and laws and legislation that perfectly align with the gospel. That's not the world that we're promised and that's not the way that we're promised of influencing society. And so we need to accept that we are going to live within a nation that very often will have laws, will have policies, will have a direction that doesn't align itself particularly well with a Christian agenda, with a Christian approach. And we need to figure out a way of living faithfully within that situation. Some of the consolation that the quester takes in that situation is to say that ultimately the authorities that exist 
are accountable to God. And there will be a day of judgment. He says in verse 6, for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. That word matter is the word, the Hebrew word mishpat. Literally, it means judgment. Often it's used of God's judgment. And I think here, it, he's not necessarily saying there's a time for us to judge every matter, procedure, and so on. He's saying there's a time that God will judge. There's a time when the rulers and authorities of this world will be accountable and will stand before the Lord and be accountable for the decisions they've made, the policies that they've adopted, and the laws that they've passed. It's not our place to judge that. That is God's place. That is the future and final judgment that is one day coming, and we can leave that in God's hands. And we know that on the other side of that judgment, God will bring about a world, a society, a culture, where shalom will prevail, where justice will be brought to bear on injustice, where there will be equality, where violence will be done away with and there will be peace, where there will be abundance, where people will be whole and healthy and God will be all in all, respected and submitted to, when his kingdom will finally come on earth as it is in heaven. That day is God's to bring about. That kingdom is God's. And yes, we participate in it in small ways, but it's not for us to try and bring God's judgment into the present. Because ultimately the authorities that exist are accountable to him and will answer to him one day. So we take consolation from the fact that there'll be that future judgment, even though, as Ecclesiastes says, a person may be weighed down by misery in the present life. That's the tension, that we know God's going to judge. We know that one day he'll bring justice to bear on injustice. But in the present, we are weighed down sometimes by misery because we see a social agenda because we see laws and policies being passed that seem so different, because we see a culture sliding towards secularization, because we see family values being eroded, and these things rightly concern us. But what we've got to figure out is what should be our response to that? What should be our response to that cultural decline? And I would argue that our response, our political response, if you like, should not primarily be to try and influence laws and legislation, and policies, but to be certain types of people and to be a certain type of community within the world for the sake of the world. And that type of community, I think, comes to its clearest expression in Romans 12. Just flick over there for a minute. It's significant that this passage, by the way, comes just before Paul's passage on governing authorities in Romans 13. Just before he launches into all that about submitting to the authorities, submitting to the government, he gives us this beautiful description in Romans 12 about what type of community the church is supposed to be. And I think you could read this in Romans 12 in a way as our political manifesto. This is how we are going to change the world. This is how societies and cultures are changed. Not through this top-down imposition of laws, but through a bottom-up influencing of people's hearts and minds. Listen, just a few verses, Romans 12. I'll just read from verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Not with politics, by the way, but with good, with the doing of good. See, there seems to be a long tradition of Christians assuming that the way we're going to change the world is through politics. The way that we're going to change culture, the way that we're going to stop the, 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 the slow decline morally and spiritually of our culture is by getting the right laws passed and by influencing our, our leaders and our politicians. But you take that scenario to its logical extreme. Let's say for a minute that in this election coming up in November, a Christian party swings into government, an explicitly and overtly Christian party swings into government, and then they start legislating according to the laws, the principles, the commandments, what have you, of the Bible. So they overthrow the anti-smacking bill and the civil unions bill and the prostitution reform bill. But why stop there? Because if you are intent on legislating the morality of the Bible, what about making it illegal to commit adultery? What about restricting what people can and can't do on the Sabbath? What about even going one step further and restricting what types of other religious practices people can pursue apart from the Christian faith? Do you see where this ends up? It ends up in a very oppressive place. In fact, where it ends up is with a whole lot of laws that in one way might be right and might reflect some kind of biblical morality, but they never get to people's hearts. And they never influence the hearts and minds of people who are under these laws. In a way, you end up back where the Old Testament was. You've got all the right laws, and yet people's hearts can still be so far from God. Legislating morality is never going to change a nation. Trying to influence laws according to Christian ideas and principles. While there is a time to have a political voice, that is not the primary way that the church is called to change the world. Instead, it is being this type of community that we read in Romans 12. It is overcoming evil with good. It is being a community, a faith community of justice, where needs are met, where people are looked after, where we don't look down on those of lower social position or other cultural backgrounds, but we affirm people. It's being a community of hospitality where we invite anyone to the table and there's equality and there's generosity. It's through being a community of forgiveness and reconciliation where our approach to conflict is not to run away but to sit at the table across from one another and talk things through until we can reach some kind of resolution. It's through being a community of love where we put the needs of others ahead of ourselves and then it's letting that love and that faith and that hope spill out in all kinds of ordinary ways into the community around us, into the lives of people around us. It is this bottom-up, bubbling up of faith, hope, and love that is going to bring about real change at a heart level in society. If you remember a few years ago when the Civil Unions Bill was passed, and there was huge debate at the time, huge voice among Christians and churches, and a lot of fear, I think, from Christians that somehow that bill was going to undermine marriage. That was the, the rhetoric that you heard. This will undermine marriage and this will uh, devalue the institution of marriage in our society. But I would argue that if, if marriage is being undermined and eroded within our society, the main way in which we are to turn that around is not through passing certain laws, but through modelling 
healthy marriages. Isn't it through having fantastic marriages and showing others what that looks like and equipping couples and families to be strengthened in their love for one another, to be faithful to one another, and equipping those in our community to build strong and healthy marriages. That's our witness to the world. That's how hearts are changed. That's how lives are changed. That's the bottom-up approach. That's how influence is exercised, I think, from the church. Not through telling people what kinds of legal relationships they can and can't have. You might have the right laws passed, but people's hearts can still be so far from God. See, I think Christians have become too intoxicated with a secular view of power. And we've assumed that political power is the way in which we're going to change the world. That's never what Jesus came to do. It's never what you see Paul doing, trying to influence government and get the right laws and policies changed. The power that we have to change the world is the power of a crucified Messiah. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. The power of the lamb who was slain. It's a power that often looks like weakness, but is incredible strength. It's a power that is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's a power that often looks like shame, but in it there is incredible honor. It's a power that is modeled on the cross, on laying our lives down for one another and for those outside our faith community. That's how change comes about, through faith, hope, and love, bubbling up in all kinds of ways. When I was a teenager, I used to volunteer from time to time with an organization called Drug Arm. And they would uh, meet Friday and Saturday nights, late at night, they'd have these vans, and we'd load them up with bakery food donated by various bakeries, uh, through the day, and they had all these muffins, croissants, and so on. We'd load them up in the vans, tea and coffee, and then a team of people would take off in the, in the late, hour, early hours of the morning to various spots around the inner city, particularly the back roads of K Road. And we'd park the van, open the back doors of the van, and you'd have all this food, the smell of bakery food wafting out, tea and coffee. And people would start to wander up. Homeless people, transvestites, prostitutes, and I couldn't believe that people would just be hanging out at two in the morning to chat to them, offer them a free snack and tea and coffee. And through that, we just had some fantastic conversations and a simple, humble way of demonstrating to them the love of Jesus. A few years ago, the Prostitution Reform Bill was passed. And Christians and churches were incredibly efficient at getting petitions organized to protest against the bill, to try and prevent the bill from being passed. We were well mobilized, and a lot of effort and a lot of energy and a lot of time went into that political exercise. And I just can't help wondering what the impact might have been if the same amount of time and effort and energy had gone in from Christians and getting on board with organizations like Drug Arm and being out there on the back streets of K Road at two in the morning and serving prostitutes, transvestites, and homeless people and showing them practically, literally at a street level, the love of Jesus. I think that's where Jesus would have been. 
I think that's how the kingdom comes, often with a whisper and not a roar. I think that's the power with which we'll change the world. Can we pray? Father, we thank you that you are the ultimate authority. You are the ruler over all the kings of the earth. And even though, God, we are often concerned and troubled by laws that are passed and by what seems to be a breakdown morally, socially within our society, we thank you that you're still on the throne, that you are still good, and that you are still faithful. Father, energize us, mobilize us, and motivate us to be world changers, but to do so in the power of the gospel, in the power of our crucified Saviour. Jesus, give us wisdom as to when it is appropriate to have a political voice, to have a prophetic voice in our nation. But Lord, help us also to discern those times when it is more appropriate and more fitting simply to be gospel people showing faith, hope and love in ordinary and everyday ways. We thank you that you are God alone. And it's in your name we pray. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.